You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It is 7am and it's the 1st of February. You're joined by me, Genevieve. I've got Carnegie and Evie in the studio as well. And just one moment, I'm going to plug in Fung, who's joining us uh, via phone. How is everyone this morning? Just great. How are you, Jen? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit, little bit of a stressful week, I think. Um, but the heat, I think it's just like slapped everyone Look, in the face. Look, I would be controversial. I love it. Yeah. I me. love it. I live for it. <laughs> I'm glowing. It's amazing. <laughs> I never wanted to end. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Fung, do we have you on, on the phone? Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Um, I just was too shocked to hear about Carnegie loving this heat. <laughs> I'm sorry, Fong. <laughs> I know it's tough for you with um, in without aircon. Oh, yeah. It's like I live in one of those old houses where, um, you know, the first few days, absolutely fine. And then once, you know, you hit the fourth day of heat, then it starts to feel like almost warmer inside than outside. Oh, is so. it like one of those terrace houses that just never cools down? <laughs> It's, mm. it's a bit. It's a bit intense. Yeah. 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 When it heats up, it heats up. Yeah. It's like an so oven. I think it's like <laughs> I think it's only supposed to reach like twenty something today. So I'm I'm so stoked. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be heaps milder. Top of uh, twenty three degrees, low of fourteen, partly cloudy, um, and it's looking pretty much like that for the next few days, which will be a nice little relief because uh, I do think it's just the longevity of heat. Um, Anyway, enough about the, the <laughs> um, huge show as always coming up this morning. We have a lot of special and interesting guests on. Uh, Fung, you did an interview earlier this week. Do you want to talk to us a bit about that? Sure. So earlier this week, I spoke with Susie Snyder, who is um, the lead on the Don't Bank on the Bomb project, just part of ICANN, uh, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. So we talked about a couple of uh, reports that were released last year. Um, don't, uh, sorry, one of them is perilous profiteering. The other one is rejecting risk. Talking about, um, first of all, nuclear weapons companies um, and how much money they're making their links to certain financial institutions, including some of the major banks here in Australia, and then talking about how we can put pressure on our financial institutions to disinvest from the nuclear weapons companies. Awesome. Sounds really great. Uh, Carnegie. 
Yeah, and then I had a conversation this weekend with um, artist and writer and performer Sukjit Kaurkalsa. Uh, she is an incredible um, artist based in Perth who is working on just so many things at any given time. And we had a great chat about what it's like to be a woman of colour in the arts and what representation means and the frustrations of being a woman of colour in the world. Yeah, that sounds really interesting as well. And just to finish up the show, I'm playing a conversation I had with Anna Bissadina, who is an academic expert on post-Soviet uh, history and current events. And we talk about Ukraine, um, which in, has been all over the news recently in terms of uh, militarization on the border of Ukraine and Russia. And I think uh, for Anna being a Ukrainian herself, um, it was really interesting to see the perspective of, you know, what what is this and, you know, what is the media kind of getting it right with the narrative that they're putting out uh, here at the moment. So, yeah, excited to play that one. All right. Well, um, we'll go to a quick announcement. Uh, we'll say goodbye to Fong. Uh, uh, good luck with your first day of school today. Thank you. Um, cool. We'll be right back after this. Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. Are you a taxi or rideshare driver? CPVV believes that the journey is just as important as the destination. For people with a disability, using taxi or rideshare can be challenging due to refused services, intrusive questions and drivers denying assistance animals. As a driver, you make a difference. Be the reason people with a disability have a great trip. Authorised by CPVV. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7.06am this morning and we're just going to jump into some news headlines um, for the 1st of February. I can't believe it's already February. Um, so tomorrow, or even today, is um, the Lunar New Year and it's the year of the tiger which is exciting. I think the water tiger, if I'm not wrong. Um, and last night we saw heaps of fireworks happening in Footscray at around 11pm, which was really nice. Uh, and there's a few different sort of um, outdoor events happening all through the West, at least, as far as I'm aware, in St. Albans, um, in Werribee. And yeah, really exciting. I love this time of year living in the West. There's always something going on. Um, another important news headline I wanted to talk about was, it's just um, a few days ago, it was kind of uh, said that international students will now be allowed to work more hours to help ease COVID worker shortage. And, you know, historically, student visa holders only have to, are capped for how many hours they can work during the week. 
um, it's usually a 40-hour a fortnight cap on student visa holder workers. And the restrictions have now been lifted. So, of course, that's, in a way, really good news for uh, the students themselves who for years have been asking to not have that cap and for employers. But I can't help but, you know, think about how it's just in this moment that that cap has been lifted. Um, you know, students have been wanting to do this for years Lots of domestic students, you know, uh, uh, balance working and studying and, you know, international students are not given those opportunities. Usually there's this uh, lots of kind of suspicion around that visa and uh, student visa holders are always kind of regarded with this. Oh, are you just going to stay here? Are you just here to mm-hmm. scam the system and stay? And there's, the, you know, there's a long history of that. And now when you know, it's needed, it's like all of a sudden the cap is lifted, which kind of annoys me. It, it's yeah. such an emphasis on capitalism being the reason for wanting, you know, international students or immigrants here. Literally. It's just really just, it's so upsetting. It's yeah. like only when it comes to crunch time, it's like, okay, I guess we'll let you guys work. And it's, not, it's nothing to do with valuing, valuing them specifically as members of Australia and society. That's exactly right. And it's, yeah, you know, I, I was an international student once and I found it so frustrating then and so to read this now I'm like great yeah. so now we need money so it's all good mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um, I guess in other news Ash Barty wins the Australian Open yeah. <laughs> yay <laughs> um, I'll, I'll be honest I haven't been paying a huge amount of attention to this Australian Open given the uh, infamous sort of uh, kerfuffle that was happening beforehand um, but yeah. it is – and the thing about Ash Barty too, um, two things. First, like taking a break to just do whatever she wanted, which was being a professional cricket player. <laughs> and then like secondly, the fact that like so many Australian women athletes are pros in like more than one sport and don't get paid enough in any of them. It's just, yeah, like it's so amazing to see these incredible athletes that we have in Australia and just getting nothing in the way of, you know, financial support to make sure that they have regular careers. So, yeah. uh, like, I, I, I'm i someone who follows a lot of, like, you know, women's cricket, women's football, um, and just to see so many of them, like the crossover and them trying to have, like, professional lives. It's like, uh, it, you know, seeing Ash Barty talk about that was really important too. Mm. Yeah, she's so cool, calm, and collected. Yeah, I know. <laughs> very chill. Um, all right. Well, if that's all the news headlines for this morning, I might throw it to you, Fong, to uh, begin getting us started on your conversation you had. Sure. So, like I mentioned earlier, Susie Snyder is the financial sector coordinator at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. She facilitates engagement with and by the financial sector on nuclear weapons-related issues. Susie also coordinates the Don't Bank on the Bomb project. She is an expert on nuclear weapons with over two decades' experience working at the intersect between nuclear weapons and human rights. In the first part of this interview, Susie uh, talked me through the report Perilous Profiteering, the Companies Building Nuclear Arsenals and Their Financial Backers, which was published in 2021. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Susie. Could you please start by telling us more about yourself and how you got involved with ICANN? Sure. 
Um, well, it's great to be here, first off. I mean, community radio is the backbone of community. It keeps us connected. It keeps us energized and active. And for me, that's a big part of what ICANN does as well. It takes this issue around nuclear weapons, which is super distant and it feels far away and disconnected from our life uh, and makes it real and brings it home and says, wait a minute, this is something that's not so far away. This is something that is a, it's a real risk. And it's something we can, we can actually do something about. Like we can change the story around nuclear weapons. And that's that for me, that's a big part of what ICANN does. And it's a big part of why I'm so excited to work with ICANN and to, to I, I focus on the financial sector. So to work with the financial sector as well, because everybody could do something to change nuclear weapons and the policies we have. Well, let's get right to it. I wanted to talk about two reports that um, were published very recently. The first one, Perilous Profiteering, um, was released in November 2021. Could you just very briefly tell us what this report is about and explain a couple of the key findings? Sure. Um, This report is about the companies that are involved in making nuclear weapons. And I know a lot of people often think, oh, it's governments that do it. Um, And I used to think the same thing. (laughs) But then I started looking into it and realized, no, no, there's actually major defense contractors that have contracts with the nuclear armed governments to build the key components necessary to keep nuclear weapons around. Um, And they put a lot of energy into getting those contracts, keeping those contracts and turning around and showing profit. So Perilous Profiteering also shows who's investing in these companies, who wants to make that profit um, from the defense sector and and particularly from companies that are involved in in the production of nuclear weapons. Yeah, right. I'm sure this comes to no surprise for many people, but the U.S. plays a huge role in um, the nuclear weapons space. Um, Not only does it produce weapons, but it also invests in them as well. Could you talk to us a bit more about the USA's role? Sure. Um, Well, we find a lot of information about the the US because the US publishes every single day, the US Department of Defense publishes a list of all the contracts that they grant that are over $7 million. And other countries don't do that. They do once a month or they do once a year or they do occasional um, updates with that kind of information. So the US is actually quite transparent on this. Um, So, you know, with that transparency, though, comes some responsibility. And and the U.S. has the second largest arsenal in the world. It uses primarily private contractors to build its nuclear arsenal. And it's got a huge investment um, segment that's connected to those contractors. Uh, And that's that's why the U.S. role is it seems very outsized. um, But it's because they use so much private industry and they rely on private industry um, to make their nuclear to keep their nuclear weapons out there. And, you know, the U.S. is very uh, adventurous when it comes to its nuclear arsenal as well. It's the only country that puts nuclear weapons in other countries. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. has nuclear weapons in Belgium and Germany in the Netherlands in Italy and in Turkey. No other country that has nuclear weapons is willing to, to do that. It's risky. And it's a nuclear weapons business is a risky business overall. 
obviously, you know, being located in Australia, I was heavily interested in in seeing how Australia is involved in this as well. So while the country does not produce nuclear weapons, many of its financial institutions invest in those companies that manufacture weapons. Are you able to tell us what some of these Australian companies are and how are they involved exactly in terms of loaning money or investing money? Uh, the the thing is, in Australia, there are, it's really six financial institutions that have connection to the nuclear weapon industry. Um, so you have Westpac, you have Macquarie Group, uh, ANZ, Perpetual, Pendle Group, and the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Um, and so they, what they do is they have shares in the companies that are involved in the production of nuclear weapons. And I mean, it's companies like um, that you'd expect, you know, that you see General Dynamics, their big defense company, um, and companies that you might not think are connected to nuclear weapons like Honeywell. You know, I think of Honeywell, I think of, you know, my thermostat, right? <laughs> I don't think about nuclear weapons production. I don't think about making the explosive material inside of nuclear weapons. Um, and so what these, these financial institutions do is they, they, they either hold shares, so they're, they're profiting um, directly from any corporate profits those companies have, or um, a couple of them also make loans uh, into, these, into these companies, um, and that's something that's that's quite a, a more intensive process, an intensive practice. Um, and when they, if you if you're going to loan money to a big to a major corporation, you're supposed to do some due diligence. You're supposed to look and see what are they making? Is it legal? Are that do they have a good human rights record? Do they have a governance record? Is there you know now questions like um, is there gender balance on their board of directors, right? Do they have pay equity? Um, is there a serious, you know, pay gap between men and women in the country, all in the company? All of these questions are things you're supposed to consider before you make a loan. And with a company like um, BAE Systems or General Dynamics, if they're connected to the production of a weapon that has been outlawed by international treaty, you should think twice or three times and just not make that loan in the first place. So it's something that um, these companies really have a responsibility. These, these banks, Commonwealth Bank of Australia has a responsibility to its customers to not engage and not support or try to profit from anybody making money off of, off of illegal weapons. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. So that was Sarah. 
Susie Snyder um, just before the break explaining some of the Australian financial institutions that are profiting from the manufacture of nuclear weapons. Uh, we're now going to jump into the final part of the interview where Susie talks about her latest report, Rejecting Risk, 101 Policies Against Nuclear Weapons, which was published January this year. The report shows 59 institutions with comprehensive policies against any investment in the nuclear weapon industry. They are part of the Hall of Fame. The report also shows 42 institutions that still have room for improvement, and these are the runners-up. Uh, in this next part, Susie explains what it means to have Hall of Fame status and what is keeping other companies from achieving this. Every one of these 101 financial institutions they recognize that any kind of investment in nuclear weapon companies is a problem, right? So some of them think it's a big problem. Um, and those are the Hall of Fame. If they think it's a, a big problem and they have policies that are strict um, and, and prevent them from any type of investment in any company associated with the production of nuclear weapons, they are the best of the best. And there's a lot of Australians in there as well which I'm quite excited about. And that's because of some great campaigning work that's happening within Australia. Um, so the Hall of Fame is the best of the best. And we were amazed to find 59 institutions in the Hall of Fame. Like I, I kind of had to re redo this and check and check a few times. Um, and so th that's what we want everybody to get into. Now, the runners up, they have some loopholes. They have some... Um, some gaps in the policy that could be fixed um, and it could be tightened up or they have a good policy, but they're not so great at implementing it. So they still have some investments. Sometimes they're very, very, very small investments, like, you know, a couple hundred shares, but we search and make sure that they are super clean before they go into the hall of fame. Um, and what we want to do is we want to encourage those who are in the runners up, to climb the ladder, get in the Hall of Fame. And um, they've already acknowledged that this is a problem. So let's take the last few steps and, and fix it up. So the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons entered into force on January 22nd, 2021. Australia has not yet signed up to this treaty. How has the treaty impacted the relationship between financial institutions and uh, those nuclear weapons providers or manufacturers? What we're seeing is for some, in some places, because of the treaty, um, if the country has joined onto the treaty, uh, then that country has directed its central bank, its sovereign wealth funds um, to divest. So we saw uh, last year when the treaty entered into force, a bunch of banks in Ireland, for example, all dropped their investments in nuclear weapon producers. Some of them with policies, some of them without. They just said, oh, can't do this anymore not gonna, you know, and they didn't publish anything. They just, they just sold everything off, said, all right, we're done. We're out of this. Um, so that's, that's one thing we're seeing, you know, there's less, um, there's less eagerness to invest in the industry. Um, we're also seeing in countries that haven't signed on um, there, the financial sector looks ahead, right? It looks, it's like, okay, so we're, we're judging what's going to give us a good return, what, how we're going to make money. Um, and we've learned from other weapons that have been banned. Um, if you invest in the producer of that weapon, 
there that company is going to have some problems coming up even if it's if it's a company located in a country that never joins the the ban treaty whatever type of treaty it is um, that company is still going to be a problem mm-hmm. so they get out and they're getting out now and we're seeing this happening in norway in denmark we're seeing you know countries that are part of nato um, and their financial sector is saying <laughs> yeah no we're not going to we're not going to invest in these nuclear weapon producers anymore because it's just too risky. And you know, every every good investor, you want to take a little risk. You want to you know, you want to get you make the right decision and make some money. Um but this is becoming too risky and when the when the weapon is prohibited under international law regardless of whether a country has signed on to that treaty or not, it's still too risky of a business to get into. Could you tell us what criteria you used when assessing the status of these financial institutions? Absolutely. Um, So the first thing is the policy, whatever policy they have, it has to apply at the top level. Um, So it's it's great if a subsidiary has a policy Um, that can be really cool and it can help change the top level. But that's not what we count. And it was a bummer because I found an amazing subsidiary policy and that I was looking into the institution like, oh, it's just a subsidiary, but it's so cool. And I couldn't include them. I was very sad. <laughs> um, so it has to be, it has to be at the top level. It has to be public. So anybody can go in and find something, whether it's at least in an annual report or, um, or it says on their website and their responsible investment investing section or their sustainability section um, of their websites, they have to say something about controversial weapons, about nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, the policy has to apply to, um, for the best of the best, it has to apply to uh, all nuclear weapon producers, no matter what country they come from. And this was a big sticking point with a few, like a few of the institutions have amazing policies, but they make an exception for, for like the US or the UK or France. They say, oh yes, you know, if it's, if it's India's nuclear weapons, we will not invest. If it's French nuclear weapons, we're fine with it. They use this interpretation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty um, where because those because five countries tested nuclear weapons before 1967, they're recognized as having them. They have a they have an obligation to disarm those weapons, um, but they're they're known as the nuclear weapon states. And so that's so that because they're known as the nuclear weapon states, some people interpret that as like, oh, it's fine for them to have them, which it's not. They're legally obliged to to disarm them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this mis, kind of mis, um, misunderstanding around what the, the treaty means uh, that is in the interest of those nuclear armed states to keep people, you know, keep going with. Um, mm-hmm. But that's what that's one of the, the issues with it. Um, so they have to. So a, a Hall of Fame policy says, I don't care what country you're from. If you work on nuclear weapons, you can't. We won't give you our money. Um, and then it, no, the policy is also, no matter what type of it's, it applies to the company as a whole, not just to like to um, parts of the company or to just or just to transactions. So the policy will exclude Boeing as a whole, right? Because Boeing makes nuclear armed missiles for the United States. Mm. Um, 
And the a policy, a, a comprehensive policy will say Boeing is excluded, not just Boeing's subsidiary, uh, you know, that makes the, the, the missiles. Um, and lastly, the, the policy has to be um, implemented fully. So we do, this, we do this check where we make sure that there are no investments. There's no exposure to any financial, any, um, excuse me, companies involved in the production of nuclear weapons. Um, and sometimes we find that there is. Um, there is some exposure. So we talk to the financial institutions. We try to talk to every single financial institution in this report. And some of those conversations are very long. And with a couple of the, the ones that moved to the Hall of Fame this year, those conversations have been um, over years. Um, and getting them from runners up and now finally into the Hall of Fame. And I'm so excited and so, and so, um, so thrilled because it shows movement. It shows that this is possible. And it shows like some of these banks, they did client surveys um, to find out, is this an issue that our clients care about? And overwhelmingly clients were like, oh, we don't want to invest in nuclear weapons. Ugh, no. Um, and so the, so the banks changed their policy. And it's, I just think it's really cool to, to see. I did want to mention Quit Nukes. Um, yes, which please. is an initiative of the Medical Association um, for Prevention of War uh, in collaboration with ICANN. Um, so they're in Australia. They analyse the policies and practices of 22 superannuation funds. Was there any collaboration with QuitNukes in your work? Absolutely. Oh, I'm so grateful to everybody who who does stuff and is connected with Quit Nukes. Um, both the the intense and comprehensive and thorough research that the Quit Nukes to, uh, team has done in connecting with and talking to all of these superannuation funds, um, to the financial institutions that came back and said, "Yes, we're on board. We're we're excited to to join you." Um, Quit Nukes has brought the number because of their their effort they brought the number of australian institutions in this report from one um to you know to six to 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 where we're at now um and we use a very similar methodology it's um it's pretty much the same like we replicate one another's methodology um with a, a few mostly there's a few small differences in the way that we um assess the whether how the the how the policies are implemented. Um, and that's just a, that's just because of resources and different, different things. But Quit Nukes is awesome. Um, it's a great website. It's, you know, it's super easy to remember, right? Quit Nukes. <laughs> and, um, and it's a, it's a project that people can get, get involved with. They have really good tools uh, for folks to contact your super fund. Um, and it's worth doing because these supers, the reason they change because people ask them to change. And so I, I'm just tremendously grateful for the, the amazing work of the, the Quit Nukes team. And this report that we just published out, we just published, uh, wouldn't have been so exciting. And so like, it was, it was so cool because uh, we had the, the great collaboration from the Quit Nukes folks. Awesome. Well, shout out to, to Quit Nukes if anyone's listening. And finally... If listeners want to get involved, find out how their bank super fund stands in terms of nuclear weapons, or if they want to put pressure on their institution, do you have any advice or suggestions for them? Well, the easiest thing is to just ask them, what do they invest in? And however you connect, um, right, whether it be 
um, with some people have like investment advisors, they can ask their investment advisor, Hey, are we connected to any of these companies? Um, worried about that. Um, some, um, if it's, you know, like I said, I do my banking on my phone. Uh, and I think a lot of other people might do that too. Um, and I, I send occasional questions to the chat bot through the phone, just, Hey, what are the, has there been any change in the investment policies of the bank? Um, does the investment policy exclude nuclear weapon producers? Um, I'm lucky I work, I bank with a great ethical bank and they do, but I keep bugging them about it too, to show them that I'm concerned. Um, and if you want to know what companies are part of the nuclear weapons, like are connected to nuclear weapon production, um, you can find that information. It's, there's a, we have a dedicated microsite at ICANN specifically looking at this. So you can find on quit nukes because they've got information there as well. Um, or you can look at divest.icanw.org. And there's information for companies, information for investors, for campaigners. Um, and yeah, and just keep, keep, keep pushing. We're, we're, we're making great change in the world and it takes time. And right now we get to celebrate a little win. Um, and we're going to keep celebrating more wins, like when Australia joins the nuclear ban treaty, which I think is going to happen soon. Thank you for joining us on 3CR. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's, it's, it's great, to, great to have been here. And like I said, you know, community radio is the heart of community. Um, and this is also how change happens. So keep it up. That was Susie Snyder, Financial Sector Coordinator at the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, speaking about two recent reports, Perilous Profiteering and Rejecting Risk. That was a really great interview with Fung. Um, Please refer to our show notes later this morning to find access to the ICANN website, the reports mentioned in the interview, as well as the Quit Nukes website. Make sure you also listen to the Radioactive Show right here on 3CR, Saturdays 10 to 10.30am, the anti-nuclear program with up-to-date news and information information on nuclear, peace and energy issues. Next up, we're going to play uh, a new single by Georgia Mack in light of the recent controversy surrounding Spotify and artists like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young boycotting the platform because of Joe Rogan's podcast spreading misinformation. Um, This single by Georgia Mack is about her self-proclaimed terrible taste in men and it is called Joe Rogan. Smoking the voice of Joe Rogan, he thinks that I'm a lot. My friends always say I got real bad taste, but I will never stop. You could watch me leave, you could watch me go. Dangerous than a man who 
Joe Rogan by Georgia Mack. So next up, we're going to play an interview that I did with spoken word artist, writer, and performer Sukjit Kalsa. Sukjit is a performer based in Perth. She's performed in Australia, Southeast Asia, Canada, and the UK, and was a 2022 Young Australian of the Year finalist for WA. I caught up with Sukjit earlier in the week to talk about South Asian representation in the arts and media, the scam of inclusion and diversity in the workplace, the importance of allyship, and her upcoming projects. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Sukjit. Um, can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Thank you for having me. I feel like this is the closest I'm going to get to Melbourne as I'm trapped in this beautiful P-town of WA. So I am currently on Noongar Buja, which is in WA in Perth, and I've always been a Perth girl um, and I've always been an artist of some sort. I've hopped around different disciplines. I started off in spoken word poetry, then I went into theatre, now I'm in film, um, all similar like sort of themes that I like to cover um, and they tend to uh, speak to sort of my Sikh roots. So anything I do... It ends up being fully Sikh, so. (laughs) Incredible. So a lot of your work does centre around, you know, your identity as a Sikh person and unearths racism, um, delves into the importance of pride and cultural identity. 
Um, a great example of this is Saga Sisterhood, which brought performers from South Asian backgrounds together to tell their stories through performing arts. Um, can you tell us how this came about and what that experience was like? I'm very lucky. I get to walk into spaces. Like I walked into the Centre for Stories, which is a storytelling um, organisation here in Perth, and I'd never heard of them. I'd never met them, but I walked into their office and I was like, hey, you guys are South Asian. I'm South Asian. And I really am sick of people telling me that there just isn't enough South Asian talent in Perth that I can call upon. So let's say I want to write a play or I want to write a TV series. Um, there's that whole comment of there's just not that many. So I was like, well, how can I, how can I be a part of training some people up as well, like from different age groups? Um, and surprisingly, when I did this project, um, Saga Sisterhood, um, I wanted just to get at least six or seven people to do a storytelling workshop and then we'd see if the enthusiasm of the group would lead to more, we would, you know, do more with it and turn it into a theatre show and maybe tour around Australia. This was pre-COVID. Um, and then uh, my mum rocked up and I was like, what are you doing here? And she ended up coming through and... I was really surprised that there was, there ended up being a high number of um, like, just, I loved the age, like breadth of people in their sixties, seventies, forties, and then just heaps of cool young people like my age in the early twenties, late twenties, thirties, and all from so many, what, what would define South Asian was just so like vast in that room you know you've got Fijian Indian Mauritian Indian like there was just Sri Lankan Bangladeshi like I like that at all like you just I didn't get to see that in any other project so we ended up going through some like storytelling training but really it was an excuse for me to make friends because I was very lonely (laughs) coming back to Perth after living in Melbourne for so long and being surrounded by people like you who were just so inspiring and I never felt alone. And then I started to feel alone again. And surprisingly, every single person who came to this workshop, about 20, 30 people, they ended up saying, we feel alone, even though we're here right now. But there's this sense in Perth, I don't know if the, you know, you've been to Perth, but it's a very isolating place in itself in comparison to the world. But within Perth, no one likes to travel very far to go to someone's house. Um, you stick to your own little pocket. There's a north of the river, south of the river rivalry. And I, I don't like it. I think that we, yeah, we need to travel to hang out with people. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that what you just said is such an important thing to kind of be in the media, be in the world that people can understand that South Asian identities are so diverse. Um, I think there's this real sense in Australia and lots of other parts of the world where there's just one Indian identity or one South Asian identity. And that's just so far from the truth. Like, and I find it so difficult to explain to people how unbelievably diverse the cultures are, the languages are, the food is like, it's, you know, someone from Bombay and someone from Punjab don't even speak the same language. Absolutely, but even within Punjab, even within Sikh communities, Muslim communities, Hindu communities, there are so many differences within. People can't even agree on the same way to eat their food or the same (laughs) way to pray or the same way to, you know what I mean? Like even within my own community, 
which is why like, you know, I, I feel like as a kid, I was taught that I needed to represent my community in everything I did. And me and my siblings kind of took that into our work. But now I think I've kind of putting this disclaimer out that actually I can't, I'm actually just representing me right now. And it's hard to do that if um, you feel this pressure, like every little room you're in, whether it's in when I'm in a film space or art space or even just a supermarket. I used to, like nowadays, like I laid on really thick and I like, and Perth does that to me, like my Aussie accent changes to this really ochre white man in me that's trying to burst out. And now I feel like people look at me a little bit differently because they can't see my Aussiness. And then I feel like I need to like overcompensate. Um, but yeah, with Saga Sisuit, I forgot to mention, but over here, to get an audience that just did not look like the general white artsy audience was just like so great. Um, and I loved it. I felt more comfortable um, as someone who's hosting that night. Yeah, I absolutely relate to the various conflicting identities within you. Um, and the different places that bring out the different sides. But also, congratulations on being a finalist um, for Young Australian of the Year for WA. That is, I think it's a huge step in recognising your achievements and impact as a woman of colour. You know, you've been campaigning, you know, against racism, for diversity in so many spaces. And I imagine this has been celebrated pretty widely in the Indian Punjabi communities. This is what's hilarious. The other day when I posted, because for us that are like, you know, each state has their award ceremonies. So I'd, last year was just a weird awards year. And honestly, I feel like they were just despo for some brown people because they got in trouble for not having any brown people because it's just been a really white event. And even the winners, like, like they're beautiful, like the, the WA winners. But I looked up at the screen and I, I looked at my partner and I was like, oh, my God, they all look related. They're blonde and white. Like, this is so great. And it just, look, I don't want to be a cynical, horrible, ungrateful migrant girl, but sometimes it just feels like Australia can accept me when I'm smiling and I'm, like, polite and I'm doing, you know, social justice work that's reasonable and doesn't affect them. But as soon as I cross, there's a little line that I cross and I move to the other side and the other side is lonely and the other side is like judged. Like the other day I went to like an open mic thing in Perth and it was all very like um, freestyle. So I didn't have anything prepared. I just got up and like I was just so frustrated. I was just being really nice and really polite and yet I'd managed to offend a whole bunch of white boys. And I was like, you haven't even met the 100% version of me. No one in Perth has met the 100% version of me. When you see that, you will probably cry and shit your pants. But for now, I'm showing you hardly any bit of myself and it still offends people. So coming back to this Australian of the Year stuff, I think it's beautiful. I think people need to be recognised for their talent and for the hard work they've put in. There were some people that I read about who were like the youth in the youth category all around Australia. It was so inspiring. Like I was like, oh, my God, these people are phenomenal. I really want to meet them. However, in Perth, that's the only thing I can really speak on, on behalf of, we've got a long way to go. And I just feel like because I don't have the right face and the right look um, that's acceptable, yeah, people get to know me 
and they'll think I'm something and then they're like go oh actually oh she's a bit controversial oh calm down love and you're like actually no because this yeah I don't know I don't know what the solution is I I just hope that it keeps getting better and better and I think it depends on your expectations so my family who isn't in the arts you know we'll watch a movie and we'll have very different reactions to it like if it's in like a character that's South Asian my family will be like, oh, my God, it's so cool, like representation, look how far we've come. And I'm like, yes, I agree. I totally agree. That's amazing. However, because I'm, like, looking at it critically and I'm in that world every day, I'm just frustrated that it's still not, like, earlier you were talking about the diversity within South Asian culture. If if all of us have kind of known that for so long, why is it that when we watch TV, we still can only see these really boring, lazy stereotypes? Like if we've been here for so long, like, and there's been so many people trying to push through, like it's not about, oh, there just isn't, there isn't resources or there isn't enough talent or there isn't all these excuses. It's actually people who are in positions of power don't want change. If they want to change, we wouldn't have racism right now. We wouldn't have misogyny. We wouldn't have sexual assault in parliament. We wouldn't have sexual assault full stop. But because people don't want to change and give up that, you know, that stupid little thing called power, you know, and there's like a whole lot of people that will miss out. So that's my rant for, you know, Monday morning. So that was the first half of my interview with spoken word artist and performer Sukhjit Kaur Khalsa. Um, next up, we're going to play a song that Sukhjit actually recommended to me. Um, it is by a an American Sikh Indian uh, singer-songwriter called Ravina. And the video for this song, I highly recommend watching. It's super mesmerizing. Um, and this song is called Secret. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855 AM. Tune in and listen up.
all sunset. Plenty women don't fit. Everybody get lonely. Baby wanna get lit. She don't wanna get married. But she wanna get rich. Late night lover. Come on this. Hey, what can make you wanna get away? Tired of ripping in the scan, watch it drift away. Cupid shot and hit your heart, it didn't ricochet. Now we getting in the sun, lit the him away. Yeah, ain't no giving you the run around. Get inside, I'm feeling how I'm never coming down. What you tripping on? How the summer sound? Put it in a song, put it in my. Yeah. Boy, can you keep a secret? Secret by Ravina featuring Vince Staples. We're now going to jump back into my interview with artist and performer Sukjit Khalsa, where we discuss the importance of real allyship um, and brown girl representation in the arts and media. Similar to the, you know, the concept of diversity and inclusion in like a corporate workplace, isn't it? It's like they'll have that department and then they'll hire and like a token brown person or black person or whatever. And then you have to toe a line, essentially, because you're still in the predominantly white workspace. And it's kind of what you're saying, where if you cross that line, it's a very lonely space. You know what's hilarious? In Perth, I've never seen a diversity and inclusion officer that isn't white. The most ironic thing here is that you can apply for the job but apparently a white guy will get it. And you're like, how, how, how is this happening right now? So it's just, and you're right, tokenism is never, and the the sad thing about those, my biggest question to arts organisations, once you hire someone who is a marginalised person, whatever that may be, and you all know what that means, um, like what are you going to do when they get there? What's your plan? Because I've been burnt, you've been burnt, like, Everyone, like, pats themselves on the back like they've saved me from the slums of India. And then as soon as I get there, there is, like, literally zero support. No support to the point where, like, you just want to leave. That's how I feel so many times. And as a career, how many more times can you handle that? You know, like, I remember when I was in Melbourne, all I wanted to do was talk about my vagina on stage. Yet I felt like if I didn't talk about racism and being Sikh, I wouldn't get the clicks and I wouldn't get the points and I wouldn't be recognised. And I actually think that is how I stood out because of my culture. Um, 
if I just talked about, like, if I was Seinfeld, if I had, like, I don't know, I'd love, I've been watching, it's in my head right now because I've been binging it. And I've been thinking, could I do that? Could I make $950 million right now from 10 seasons of a show talking about nothing? Like, is there room for a brown girl to do that? I wish there was. And I want to do that. I really want to do that. Sometimes I like have an alter ego where like half of me is like so political. Everything has to have meaning and everything I say and do is like with purpose. And then the other half just wants to bum around and do nothing with her life. So (laughs) Uh, it's a struggle. I feel you. But I think that hopefully, I mean, you being visible in these spaces is making a change for you know future generations because we didn't grow up with you in a visible space so I feel like young brown girls seeing you being a finalist for young Australian of the year or you know doing spoken word about racism and not your vagina will (laughs) pave a way for them to be able to do it about their vaginas you know yes and look it's a generational thing after touring the world and learning about how just with like the Sikh community, but I think it's very relevant to a lot of different communities that have migrated um, each generation in certain countries. Like, for example, in Malaysia, the Sikh community has been there for like six generations. So how they, how they um, view love and relationships is really different to how the diaspora in Australia would be taught how they're allowed to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or like how they can operate in, in that world. Whereas it was just really refreshing to see um, that generation in Malaysia, like kind of the Sikhs kind of just like uh, making an amalgamation of whatever that was. And I think that was kind of hopeful and an example of how culture changes. It's not a scary thing. Traditions change. Um, Things evolve with each generation. And I think the great thing is you get to pick and choose. Um, Some people don't get to do that. I feel like when I was living under the roof of my parents, I wasn't allowed to do that. But now, you know, as an independent woman, I can do that. I can make those choices. And, you know, I've dealt with a lot of um, insecurities about being Sikh and I used to feel like I'm not Sikh enough um, and I can't, especially because I was public and I was like, I can't, I can't say this stuff because I don't feel Sikh. I don't feel like I am. I'm true to what I'm meant to be doing. Um but I, you know, I met my partner and he comes from um, the Myanmar people from up north in, um, in Western Australia. And it was interesting that over the last couple of years, he's taught me that, you know, him as an Aboriginal man, he gets to define what that means for himself, not anyone else. And through that, I've surprisingly learned. And now I'm at that stage where I haven't really thought about it. It's not conscious anymore. It's kind of just like, there's a lot of those thoughts in my mind that have gone. In your recent interview with SBS Punjabi, um, you said that it's really important for migrant communities to have allyship with each other and more importantly with Indigenous communities, which is something I absolutely agree with. Um, I don't think migrant communities speak up about it enough. Can you talk a bit more about why why you think that's important? It's really unusual. I've been doing a lot of projects lately that are to do with that relationship between the migrants. Um, And it's weird, you know, I always say migrant, but to be honest, like if everyone's a migrant, then perhaps it's actually more about, I still haven't figured out what the right word is, but it could be like people of colour in Australia or diaspora people of colour 
what are we doing when it comes to just engaging and is it like this there's so much going on for south asians i can't speak on behalf of any other culture but i know for south asians there's this like inner racism that's come from the motherland that people bring to this land to do with color colorism classism um and then what people are seeing is just the end product of genocide and intergenerational trauma and they instantly judge the weird thing is growing up in perth i like my family we were exposed to so many different types of people and there was like a non-judgment sort of rule in our house and like my role models as a kid without even realizing who they were and whether they were aboriginal or not like i used to be obsessed with deborah mailman jess mailboy Kathy Freeman, I used to pretend I was Kathy Freeman. I don't know why. Like, I'd dress up like her in, like, primary school. Um, I was obsessed. And then now I look back, and I think it's because when you're looking for a role model, you settle for anything you can get. I think that's why a lot of brown kids look up to black rappers um, and and even Indigenous kids look at African-American rappers as role models because if you can't get what you need, from your own sort of world that you're living in, you kind of just like grab onto something. And I think that that what like that did for me was it really informed like slowly over time, as you get more political, you go through high school. I had some great teachers that really exposed me very early on to the true history of this country. I'm very lucky because a lot of schools probably didn't get that. I reckon a lot of people got a whitewashed version of history. Um, and I was exposed to some really lefty teachers. Um, and that's when, when I got, by the time I got to uni, I was like, well into, okay, protesting, what is like, what is going on? Why is like, no one really talking about this? And then when I moved to Melbourne, I remember going to um, the Invasion Day March, and I'd never been to, I think it was, that was like, many years ago, so it was 50,000 people, I'd never even been a little Perth girl, hadn't even been in a protest that had 50,000 people. And I was like, oh, my God. So I did a photo shoot there and I put it in an exhibition and basically it was inspired by the Sikh family that was at the Australia Day March and they were wearing, the little toddler had Australia like tattoos on his face. They were all wearing blue, had the blue turban. Like they all were like, you know, beautiful, cute migrant family. But it was jarring for me to see the Aussie flag so they looked at me and they recognised me and they're like, Sajit, Sajit, what are you doing? And I had my picket, I had my like Indigenous colours and I had my friends and, and we, were, we were at a sort of fence. It was the barricades of the Australia Day Parade and then this sort of like Invasion Day march was happening right afterwards. So you had a bit of a drizzle from these people who were very proud of their Australian identity. And they asked me, they're like, Sajit, why weren't you at the Australia Day march? Aren't you proud of your Australian identity and what are you doing and they didn't say it like with any like malice it was just like whoa what's going on curiosity what are you what's going on and I was like oh I don't celebrate Australia Day um do you know the history of Australia Day and for them it was like it was more nuanced it was more like oh you know on on the radio you hear like oh, yeah, Bazaar, we're going to go to the Aussie barbecue and, yeah, yeah, you got your plans on, you know, and, like, all this, like, buzz on this public holiday and, 
And these people in these offices were like Sikh and from different cultures. Like, oh, I want to be part of this Australianness. I want to be Australian. And then there's not really a thought of like, okay, what's actually going on? And then there's another layer. Like I've I've also recently learned about how there are certain groups of migrants where um, you you were persecuted in your own country for being political. So when you come to this new land, um, newfound home, you put your head down and you get on with you know, work. So I'm trying to question that. I'm going, yes, I understand. I want to be compassionate. I understand where you're coming from. But for those, this is a message for those that are a bit more privileged. So I find that as economic migrants, as Indian and Chinese migrants, and in Perth, we're the top two non-English speaking, non-white, you know, migrants, and we're probably the wealthiest. Like, don't know the facts on that, but there's 100% more wealth in being a refugee, in being an economic migrant than a refugee. So what are we doing with that? What are we going to do with that privilege now? We've been here, your kids are settled, they're in awesome schools, they're getting awesome education, they're going to get awesome jobs and cars and houses, but then what? Like, what's the plan? And that's where, that's my long-winded way of saying, you know, my approach isn't to hate on and like to get like catty and you know not being reasonable to those that wouldn't understand but I think my my mission is to get them to understand and what do those casual racist remarks you know mean and I remember talking to some Sikhs in Canada I'll quickly finish up but there were some Sikhs in Canada that I was speaking to when I went there and they were telling me how it's also a generational thing. And I asked them, I said, why are these young Sikhs so engaged with Indigenous politics? Like, I am literally so alone in that here in Australia. I've not met a lot of, there's a handful of people that give a shit. So what's going on? And they said that it's because they were taught, like, then they didn't just see the end product of homelessness and terrible trauma. They they actually have seen the sort of progression of how that has happened and they've had that education so they're way more compassionate than those that haven't but I look I'm working on a rom-com right now and it's between an Indian lawyer and a Indigenous football player um and I the message I want to put out there isn't about you know I've got a love story of my own but it isn't about falling in love with someone in order to empathize we don't need to fall in love with someone and bone them and have babies with them to be not racist because that also doesn't sometimes solve racism but I think we just need to be able to somehow get to that point of understanding and respect and compassion um even if you don't come from that background and I and look I say this to men as well like if you're a man on an island with no woman in sight I would still expect if you didn't have a daughter or a mother or a wife or a girlfriend or whatever I still expect you to care because it's not that hard to empathize you don't have to physically experience anything you don't have to physically be a part of I don't know that marginalized community to care I think we all have that in us it's just if we want to tap into it or not Absolutely. And I think um, I had a recent chat with uh, an artist, Mickey Lam, who um, is from Hong Kong. And we were talking about how there's been more people of colour and women of colour in art spaces. And she said something really important, which is that while that's great, 
we don't want to become the next gatekeepers of that medium. And I think that applies here as well. Like we, the diaspora, don't want to become the next, you know, with the privilege that we have and the economic status that we're cultivating, we don't want to then become the gatekeepers. So you mentioned you're working on a rom-com. When and where can we expect to see this? So I wish I could tell you when it's happening, but I'm hoping in the next two years because I'm dying to make it. I feel like we need something that shows that relationship. Imagine watching a show where we're not centering white people. Let's just think about that for a moment because, yeah, it doesn't really happen. And if it does happen, it's done in a way that's still got a white lens. I feel like I'm trying to figure out how to talk about myself and talk about my experiences without my whiteness. It's very hard because I don't know what that looks like. (laughs) Well, I'm very excited to see this. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. But thank you so, so much for joining us on the show this morning. And um, hopefully we'll see you in Victoria very soon. Awesome. Enjoy your day. Bye. Bye. That was... uh... Carnegie's interview with Sukja Koya Kasa. Sukjit Gorkasa. Which was um, such a good chat. I love having a chat like that with other brown women with similar but also wildly different experiences. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. A brilliant speaker. Um, really enjoyed that interview. Um, we're going to jump uh, straight into another conversation. Busy, busy show this morning, but this one um, I had the privilege of having uh, just yesterday with um, academic uh, Anastasia Besadina, who is uh, an uh, academic and lecturer and a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney from the Government and International Relations Department, where her research focuses on identity revolutions and post-Soviet spaces. And she's on the show today to speak to us about current events that are happening in Ukraine, which you've probably seen a ton of information on in wherever you get your news. Uh, So tensions between the two countries, uh, Russia and Ukraine, have been mounting due to Russia stationing tens of thousands of troops near the Ukrainian border and carrying out a steady flow of (laughs) military maneuvers. NATO allies have expressed their fear of a potential ground invasion by Russia and have sent additional troops and military equipment to Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine was a part of the Russian Empire for centuries before gaining independence from Russia following the collapse of the Soviet Union, but has been hotly contested territory and a battleground for soft power ever since. Um, And I mean, considering this long history between the two countries and Ukraine serving as a proxy war zone for NATO and Russia, in its recent past, many media outlets are expressing grave concern that the conflict will turn into devastation and war. And I think Anna does an incredible job at cutting through some of this to give us a more clearer picture in terms of what's going on. And specifically, I think, and most importantly, refocusing the lens on the people uh, who this is affecting, which is Ukrainians. Thanks so much for joining us, Anna. Um, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Yeah, so am I. I think a lot of people don't necessarily know a lot about Ukraine. And I think for a lot of people reading the news on Ukraine right now may not necessarily understand 
uh, I guess, the history of the Ukrainian and Russian uh, relationship. So it'd be awesome if you could start us off by briefly explaining what kind of history Russia and Ukraine have and why that might be impacting what we are seeing today. Um, yeah, that's a very wonderful question. And um, I might, uh, you know, say a little bit of a warning Um uh, Ukrainian history is quite complex and um, besides uh, being occupied, let's just say, by Russian Empire, it has also experienced occupations by um, other um, other powers in the region, um, such as the Polish-Lithuanians, the Hungarians, but I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to focus on uh, mainly on Russia and Ukrainian relations. So I'd like to pinpoint a few historical moments here. Um, during the Russian Empire, Empire occupation um, in the 18th century, Ukrainians experienced Russification policies. So what this means is, for example, Ukrainian language and Ukrainian books were prohibited. Um, another example of these policies are Ukrainian nationalists, academics, um, intelligentsia were suppressed, imprisoned, essentially. So during that period, um, literature and education dictated Russian as the national language where the history of Ukraine was rewritten in the hands of the Russian Empire, where, um, for example, Ukrainian identity was portrayed as the brother of Russia, little Russia, the Ukraine, um, that is a periphery that belongs to Russia. Now, skipping a little bit into the Soviet Union, now we see continuation of Russian suppression of Ukrainian sovereignty, um, specifically um, paying attention of what happened during um, Stalin's rule. Now, Stalin, during his rule in the Soviet Union, he displaced Ukrainian populations, such as in the east of Ukraine, and then occupied those um, regions by ethnic Russians as a way of diffusing any sense of sovereign freedom or nationalism. One of the most brutal legacies of the Soviet Union was Stalin's genocide against Ukrainian uh, Ukrainians, known as Holodomor. Now, this happened from 1932 till 33, um, around 10 million um, Ukrainians died. Now, thinking a little bit forward to independence time, Ukraine um, finally, you know, um, gained independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. But modern Ukraine has constantly grappled with Russian intervention in its politics. So, for example, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was the president of Ukraine from 2010 until he was ousted in 2014, he has ties to Kremlin and diverted a lot of Ukrainian interest away from Europe and towards Russian alignment. Um, now, current Putin's Russia has not only used hard power to illegally annex Crimea in 2014 and wage war in eastern Ukraine, but it has also gone to the extraordinary you know, efforts and lengths to use soft power of propping up political elites and using propaganda to vilify Ukraine and perceive it as a periphery that belongs to Russia. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, um, I guess, frames discussion really well in terms of what we're seeing today. And I guess going on from that in a general <laughs> sense, obviously, I'm sure Ukrainian opinion varies, but how do Ukrainians feel about Russia now? And I guess particularly 
considering, you know, the Euro Maiden, and maybe you can briefly touch on that as well, the Euro Maiden revolution in 2013-2014, uh, uh, do you think there is obviously disdain still carrying on from these events? Oh yes, definitely. Look, um, the first things that the first thing that I wanted to say about Ukrainian population is that it's a very um, diverse group of people. So, um, a diverse people of even ethnicities. There's mixes of you know Polish, Hungarian, um, ethnic Russians. Um, there's also a mixture of um, different political affiliations. You know, people have different ideas about Ukraine, whether um, they want to be with Europe, whether they want to be sovereign or they're sympathizers of Putin. You know, so you have a very diverse group of people. And why why is that the case? And I mean, that goes back to some of the historical points I told you about. You know, histor history has a very big impact on Ukrainian identity. So there's a mix of people with different feelings. And um, when we think about the revolution that happened in 2013, 2014, um, I believe that that is one of the most monumental historical events in Ukrainian modern history. And I'll tell you why, because um, when we look at 2013, this was the time where um, Viktor Yanukovych was the president. And this particular president um, has built actually a lot of efforts, um, rhetorical efforts to align Ukraine with Europe. And all of a sudden in Ukraine during winter, um, we see that Viktor Yanukovych does not want to sign EU alignment agreement. Now, what happens in that moment is a lot of Ukrainian students from universities come out on the streets in a very peaceful protest to say that, hey, you know, we want to be part of the EU. Now, a very monumental thing happens the next night. Viktor Yanukovych sends out security forces to brutally beat up students that were demonstrating for their support of joining EU. Okay. Now, what happened overnight, it has transformed the country. And instead of seeing Yevromaidan as that first stage of a revolution that was mobilized by students, we see an upheaval of the revolution of dignity. Now, that is, you know, um, a moment in Ukrainian history that will never be forgotten because um, that was truly a stance against dictatorship, a stance against corruption, and um, the Ukrainian people stood in solidarity against security forces. Now, that particular moment was a very great opportunity for Russia to see, uh, you know, internal instability and illegally annex Crimea. And then we see a lot of disruption and war in eastern part of Ukraine. So this particular revolution, this particular event has had a very big motion throughout even these years, because today we see a lot of Ukrainians coming out on the streets in Kiev, a lot of diaspora actually around Europe um, protesting against Russian aggression today. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think um, following on from that in terms of you know, Russian intervention mm -hmm. from the point that they separate, well, Ukraine separated from the Soviet Union, right up into what we're seeing now. You know, what does Russia want with Ukraine? What 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 are they seeking out with, I guess, militarizing the border here? 
Yeah, look, you know what? It's it's quite simple. Um, Russia wants to restore its sphere of influence over post-Soviet states, and um, it wants to reincarnate the Soviet Union. And uh, a way of doing this is through war that results in frozen instability. You know, we've seen this happen. 2014 annexation of Crimea, um, support of war um, in eastern part of Ukraine, um, now, this has brought a lot of instability and um, Russia really wants to restore the good old days of the of the Soviet Union. And I also want to point out just with this question that containing Ukraine means expanding hegemonic influence. And this current military buildup in the north part of Ukraine is challenging NATO and U.S., and Ukraine's potential membership with NATO gives Putin the security dilemma. Um, given that he sees the West as as a threat. Yeah. Yeah, that leads on to my next question actually really well mm-hmm. in terms of uh, focusing on NATO because, you know, obviously NATO has supplied Ukraine uh, with extra military and funding in terms of for them to, I guess, respond to Russia. Um, I guess if you could briefly explain why does NATO feel a need, I, I guess it's obvious, but <laughs> why does NATO feel I need to respond to Russia's actions in Ukraine? Yeah, that's a really good question and a valid one to ask. Look, Russian aggression means a threat to democracy in the region, to put it in very simple terms. Um, We've seen Russia's military capabilities and its ability in um, Moldova um, in 2008 um, in Georgia. So South Ossetia was taken away. Uh, Chechen wars, illegal annexation once more of Crimea in 2014 and war in eastern parts of Ukraine. And we've also very recently seen um, Russia's ability to swoop in to crush any protests that took place in Kazakhstan. So in regards to Ukraine itself, I I just want to mention that once Ukraine gained its independence from the Soviet Union, so that happened in 1991, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in 1994. Um, And so it joined this treaty, it's called the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, and um, it has also signed this agreement of Budapest Memorandum. Now, what this means, this particular Budapest Memorandum and giving away nuclear weapons, it means that the US, Britain and Russia are, let's just say, blessed in as the guarantors of protection. Now, ironically, the Russian supposed protector has been waging war on Ukraine's soil since 2014. So this geopolitical conflict has put NATO and also the US on its heels because Russia is violating Ukraine's territorial wholeness. It's violating peace agreements, um, democratic values, um, but also it signals the ability to attack further than Ukraine, for example, Baltic states and so on. Now, I also just want to point out in terms of just geopolitics when standing back and looking at the map i think it's important to remember that ukraine is a big country that sits as a border between the west europe and russia so russia amassing troops on the belarus border since last year which um by the way was a predictable move now the military escalation has created a serious threat within the region Putin has the ability and military might to roll up tanks to the next door neighbor. Russia has been expanding, you know, its hegemonic might in the region and US and NATO responses are reactions to this 
this balance of power. If I may, I just wanted to add one more point. You know, Ukraine is often treated as an object between these major geopolitical players. And I want to perhaps shine a little bit of light on what Ukraine wants. Looking at the peaceful uh, mobilization of Ukrainians in Kyiv yesterday and Ukrainian diaspora around the world, they have been vocalizing their concerns to the West and to the US. Ukrainian people want sovereignty, freedom and democracy, and they see the danger of Russia and ultimately want protection. Yeah, um, I'm glad that you pointed that out. And I think, I guess I can't help but be curious about, you know, Western intervention and sometimes uh, even though Russian intervention, I guess, leans on a similar um, aspect of problematic but you know with western intervention obviously comes with a lot of controversy and as you said like ukraine has acted as you know this kind of battleground with two major uh i guess state players uh but many people you know i think ask if intervention is really benefiting the specific country or you know is it or is it merely making other countries like the West or Russia, you know, richer or like uh, using natural resources. And as you mentioned, Ukraine is very important territory in terms of its geopolitical sense as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think particularly looking at the West and particularly looking at, you know, the the West uh, funding Ukraine in this way, do you think that this is what Ukraine wants or is it kind of an intervention that isn't necessary and it's kind of adding to this idea that it's just a proxy war between Russia and NATO? Yeah this is yeah definitely a really good question and I think it should be answered. Um, Well to be fair um, Russia has already intervened on snapping up um, any potential natural resources and strategic territory so Uh, Might I say that even if the West wanted something other than influence in this sphere, it's pretty much late to the party. Another example of, you know, Russia intervening and taking up, you know, strategic territories, um, for example, Russian-backed self-proclaimed Donetsk People Republic and the self-proclaimed Luhansk People Republic have coal. So I wouldn't jump to the, you know, the very quick conclusion, a very general conclusion that there is intervention from the West and Ukraine is, you know, somehow a victim here in the hands of NATO and the US. Now, my my caveat here comes from Russian-based propaganda and a lot of misinformation that vilifies the West. I like for us to focus on Ukraine and what Ukraine wants because there's a lack of focus, as I said, in media and journalism. Ukraine wants sovereignty, security and freedom and Ukraine and Ukrainian people have reached out to Western partners for financial aid, weaponry and only actually a very small handful of countries did that. While I do think that the West is an actor that is balancing the geopolitical power in the region against Russia as a way of, you know, pushing its interest of expanding European influence, there's nothing vile going on here. The focus of danger should be on Russia and the West is actually not doing enough to protect Ukraine, which, you know, protecting Ukraine means to protect Europe. That's actually a brilliant answer. As I was reading uh, some of the media art- articles, it you know said that I, I guess reports of Kremlin-endorsed Russian media 
are calling the Western media uh, on what's happening on Ukraine, in Ukraine, sorry, as hysterical and, you know, over the top and they're going too far with uh, how, I guess, devastating it's going to be and um, kind of downplaying what's going on quite a lot. And I guess you kind of answered this question, but, you know, do you think a lot of the media that you've seen Mm -hmm. and maybe specifically the Western media is blowing things out of proportion or is this really I, I well, is it really serious yeah look um i think that there are two ends of extreme that can be causing a lot of confusion to many readers um, not only international readers but also actually ukrainian readers you know there's this kind of extreme ends of total invasion is absolute versus nothing will happen. And, you know, I don't think that this is a very healthy approach to understanding Ukraine's crisis. But while saying that, I'm actually quite disappointed to see Western leaders and Western media overdue with the news coverage, considering that, well, you know, A, the Russian-led war and the threat of Russia has been an ongoing crisis since 2014, and um, B, Russian tanks were on Ukraine's northern borders early last year. There has been, hasn't been actually enough attention from Western leaders and from Western media. Russia is a real threat to the sovereignty of Ukraine, full stop. A portion of Ukrainian media has been also swinging back and forth between these two extremes. Um, particularly thanks to, I'd say, a lack of integrity of Ukraine's current president, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky. So one day um, Zelensky states that everyone should relax and have a barbecue. So I'm quoting him here. He actually said that. The next day he claims that, you know, um, Russia could occupy Kharkiv. Zelensky has not used the rhetoric of Russia as an aggressor. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I can't help but kind of see similarities in terms of this, I guess, media spectacle and, you know, what hap- what's, what happened in Belarus. But I think yeah. just to finish off, um, and I think one of the most important aspects and um, what I think everyone should uh, really want to hear about in terms of Ukraine is um, how are Ukrainians feeling about this? I mean, you mentioned that there have been protests and everything, um, but, you know, what is, I guess, the general atmosphere about um, these recent events? Yeah, look, a great question. Um, you know, just thinking about this question, I think it's a really good opportunity to shine light on something that hasn't been really spoken about in media. Um, Ukrainian volunteers and Ukrainian diaspora have been very active in providing aid to the Ukrainian military since 2014. Now, um, this has been an ongoing thing. We see a lot of men and women that have been volunteering to join the army. And I think that this very significant and amazing portion of the Ukrainian population has been doing the heavy lifting during, you know, a time of not only internal political instability, but during a time of constantly waking up in your country, in your home and thinking what's going to happen to the sovereignty of Ukraine. You know, it's it's quite a very scary thing. And um, judging from Ukraine's constant historical resilience to um, aggression of Russia, I'm quite sure that 
the Ukrainian military will do its best to support and protect the sovereignty of Ukraine. And I am quite confident in the spirit of the Ukrainian people to stand against Russia, no matter what happens. That was Anastasia Bissadina talking about Ukraine and the recent events there. We have quickly run out of time. So sorry, we're going to have to make a quick uh, outro here. Uh, But please stay tuned because Accent of Women is up next and hope you have a lovely Tuesday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.